0: so don't settle find love at first drive and start shopping now at carmax.com carmax the way car buying should be this is the hash podcast stay informed with the latest on bitcoin eth the metaverse web3 and more with stories that matter to the crypto world all on the hash for your ears you're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network.
1: Hey there. Welcome to Coindesk TV. It's the hash. I think it's Groundhog Day today. So that's cool. Happy Groundhog Day. Here we are again to talk about the crypto news. Let's get going. On Groundhog Day, we have someone doubling down on their anti-crypto stance. And Adam is going to start us off with that. What do you got, Adam?
2: Thanks, Zach. First up, a new opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal calling for a ban on cryptocurrencies is generating a lot of chatter this morning. It's authored by Charlie Munger, the ultra-wealthy octogenarian vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, and a noted Bitcoin skeptic. In the piece, which is actually surprisingly short, Munger describes cryptocurrencies as, quote, gambling contracts with a nearly 100% edge for the house, end quote. He then calls for a broad federal ban, saying in part, quote, The government of China banned cryptocurrencies because it widely concluded that they would provide more harm than benefit, end quote, before going on to cite a ban on the trading of new equities in 1700s England, which I found an interesting comparison. It's not a particularly nuanced article, and notably towards the end, it suggests that after instituting a federal ban, the U.S. should, quote, thank the Chinese communist leader for his splendid example of common sense, end quote. There's a decent amount to be said here, even before we get into the rather polarized comments on the article. Jen, you want to start us off today?
3: Sure. I love that you brought up all those quotes. It really wasn't a long article. I think when you go to the Wall Street Journal, it says it takes two minutes to listen to it. So it was very short. It had very little examples. And I have to say it was very one sided. That said, Charlie Munger, a very smart man, made billions in his life, but he doesn't like Bitcoin. And we know that, right? I think it's really interesting and funny that he brings up China as the example that we should all follow in this hatred towards Bitcoin and crypto and fails to mention that China is actually leveraging the technology that powers all of this for their own benefit in their CBDC and NFT project. I know I saw Zach's hand go up, but before we get to you, Zach, Adam, you brought up this uh, gambling contract piece from the story, and I have to read what came right before that. He said, such a wretched excess has gone on because there is a gap in regulation. A cryptocurrency is not a currency not a commodity and not a security. He then goes on to say, it is just a gambling contract. This man hates crypto. And I think that's okay. This is really funny that it was published as an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, given that it was so one-sided is my take on it though, Zach.
1: Happy Groundhog Day, y'all. Yeah, we definitely got to hear this again from Charlie (laughs) Munger and the Buffett crew. This is not New or news, really, it just is, and I think uh, that's worth stating up up at the top. I guess the most generous reading of this, and I think there is one interesting little nugget in this very short op ed that you could uh, read charitably as distaste for the way a lot of these VC coins have launched. Right, where like a VC gets uh, an early share of these tokens at a favorable rate before they go to the mass market, and the mass market gets hosed. Right, that's something you hear often from crypto community participants. Right. Oh, this is the latest VC coin where the distribution is so rigged against us. Why even bother? So, if we wanted to grant him that level of nuance, I would say that that is the one thing in this article that did stand out as somewhat reasonable in terms of some of these schemes. So that just stood out to me as potentially something that was fresh. But yeah, closing on a note with an ode to the communist government of China was certainly an odd one from a titan of American capitalism.
4: A bit but hey, whatever, it is what it is.
1: <laughs> Will, I'm tossing it to
4: you. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, he's done that before, right? He's talked about how China uh, has banned Bitcoin and banned other cryptocurrencies, and they're favorable towards that. Really odd take from someone who's been the beneficiary of American capitalism to go out and just want to ban something compared to communist China. If we're going to take the opposite side of things, I think you're on the, the right thread there, Zach. Like There have been a lot of coins that have been pumped and dumped, and it's distasteful you know, to someone like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger who have really built their empire based on buying securities from Uh, efficient corporations that have been longstanding and have been fair. Probably doesn't look great to be purchasing these VC coins that go up and then disappear immediately after a bull market ends. So I have to give that to him a little bit of an edge. On the Bitcoin side of things, I just think this is the same criticism we see all over again. And Zach, as you pointed out this morning, it's a pretty tired argument, right? like no one's super interested in this, which is why I'm curious that the Wall Street Journal published it again. Yes, if Charlie Munger comes to you with a with an op-ed, you probably have to publish it. But that is where we're at with the discourse. Jen, back to you.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to add to what you're saying. I know we say it's tired and no one's super interested, but I think that, you know, given what's going on with FTX, the Wall Street Journal looked at this as, you know, something that their audience might be interested in seeing once again. Adam?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of additional thoughts on this. The first thing is, is that he correctly identifies, I think, interestingly, that it's not a security, it's not a commodity It's not typically things that we really have good regulation for. Interestingly, though, his answer to that is that it simply shouldn't be allowed in any form rather than creating rules. This strikes me as kind of similar to, you know, like the invention of like automobiles. Like ultimately, you know, before automobiles existed, there was no such thing as speed limits. Instituting speed limits meant that there was actually rules for the road that could then allow them to be used in a way that was more safe than if it lacked rules entirely. His argument is essentially there should never have been speed limits because since cars are dangerous, why would you ever want to regulate something like that, despite the fact that there are significant advantages to it? Now, another thing that comes to mind is, of course, the Douglas Adams quote about technology, which is one of my favorites, which is essentially that anything that's in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and just a norm, natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. And anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. Munger is one of the older, richer people out in the world today. He very much benefited from kind of the earlier stages of the now very devolving and sort of falling apart systems that we now have to suffer with today. So of course, it's unsurprising that he takes this kind of viewpoint about it because he's already got his. But the reality of it is, is that just as China and just as India are taking a very harsh view towards cryptocurrencies because they threaten the order that benefits their power so significantly and are instead trying to co-opt it. Uh, you know, and turn it into sort of like a safe version that has the branding of the thing, but still allows them to retain their power moving into the next system. He very much has incentives to do the same. He's invested in the current environment. And you kind of see that over and over and over again from this type of person. So it's unsurprising, but it remains a little bit disappointing to see these nominally smart people continue to make such embarrassing arguments. Uh, And to be clear, agreed with everybody else that uh, a lot of stuff in crypto (laughs) certainly is not as it's advertised. So it'd be great if we got some real <laughs>
4: rules. But I think we can move on for now. Yeah, I'll pick it up from there. I always love the meta takes from Adam. Kind of give a nice context for everything. Let's turn over to something that's actually a little bit more fun, though. Let's talk about JPEGs <laughs> on top of Bitcoin. Yes, we talked about this on Monday, and the controversy keeps on stirring. Yesterday, a four megabyte block was published on Bitcoin. It's the largest Bitcoin block ever. Why does that matter? Well, a lot of people think that Bitcoin blocks should be small in order to increase decentralization of the network. But what we have here is someone printing a JPEG onto the network that was four megabytes in size. As you can see there, pretty fun little wizard harkening back to the Bitcoin talk forum days. Adam, I want to get your take on this story. I absolutely loved seeing this happen, but it's causing a lot of infighting within the Bitcoin community.
2: Yeah you know the topic of what is bitcoin for has been one of the biggest arguments going back to the very very beginning if you ask some people they'll tell you it's a neutral layer that is intended for anything that you can complying with the bitcoin rules and paying the price of putting it into the blockchain can put it into the blockchain uh, and then you'll talk to other people uh, sometimes who have actually done exactly that who have put stuff into the blockchain that's not transactions and who then argue that anybody else who has a use that they disagree with shouldn't be allowed to do that And so this really does wind up coming down to power again, as always, who has it, who gets to decide these things and, you know, who has to listen to those? What are the rules of this situation? To me, this is much ado about nothing. The reality of it is, is that for more than 10 years now, people have been putting non currency, non transactional data into the Bitcoin blockchain, whether you're talking about Luke Dash Jr. putting passages from the Bible in, you know, back in 2011, 2012, even though he's now and has always been actually one of the harshest critics. Or you're talking about the phenomenon of rare pepes, which, you know, every single day, you'll see thousands of transactions going on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, you know, and as they have over the course of the last, I think, nine or uh, eight years at this point. So to me, this is kind of much ado about nothing. And the whole story was a little weird because kind of it seems like people are like, oh, this is the first time that somebody's ever done this. And that's just so not true. It's It defies belief, at least for me as someone who's been sitting here watching this thing for a whole 10 years now. But uh, yeah. <laughs> So not, not surprised, not impressed, not really concerned. Zach, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is
1: kind of the latest fault line in maybe like the re-envisioning of what sort of the Bitcoin philosophy can or should be, right? I think there's been a lot of loud, former Bitcoin maximalists who are saying that Bitcoin maximalism is sort of a bankrupt moral compass by which the Bitcoin community should judge itself. And I think this sort of move by Udi and others is to advance what, a Bitcoin philosophy could be that isn't uh, stringent maximalism that we've seen potentially alienate a lot of people from the Bitcoin space. That's what Udi and others would argue. Say, hey, like Bitcoin maximalism, this like you know this purity like isn't resonating with people, right? You have all these people coming into the broader crypto economy by way of NFTs. Maybe there's a way to advance this conversation in an orderly fashion within the Bitcoin community. This seems to be sort of ramping up the troll level to like, advance the conversation or accelerate that conversation at least, right? But it's going to be really curious to see what the outcome of these conversation is. Like, what does the next like, Bitcoin philosophy look like? What does is, what is something like maximalism light ultimately look like? Can it be encompassing of these protocols that do other things relative to what Bitcoin had done previously? So that I think is sort of the bigger subtext that we're seeing here is Bitcoin maximalism as a worldview faltering, other people who had believed that previously, recognizing it as a little bit broken and figuring out how to advance it to some other state. I guess that would be the charitable read, but I think it is really interesting to see these kind of like cultural fissures emerge and sort of like, you know, morph into these various odd things, of which now this, uh, this wizard meme is one of them. Adam, I think I saw your hand. I'll toss it right back to you.
2: Yeah, I mean, just kind of tagging onto to that point, you know, all of these maximalism sort of traits wind up looking pretty indistinguishable from a religion after a relatively short period of time. And what you find in religions is that once they hit certain amounts of controversy, once they hit certain amounts of just, again, doctrinal differences in terms of the interpretation, especially in areas like this, where there really is no canonical interpretation, there's only a really, really uh, vibrant fight for who gets to decide this stuff. Again, you see, you see splintering, you see, you know, factions, uh, you know, you see forks. That's really what we're talking about. If you look at the history of religion, it's a history of forking protocols. And that's sort of what you see here in terms of the ideology. So I think even talking about the idea of Bitcoin maximalism as something that's unified speaks to this orthodoxy. And I think that that's what we then see is people who subscribe to that particular set of beliefs, then, you know, saying others believe the wrong thing because they are divergent from that orthodoxy. It is, in fact, a form of fundamentalism, it seems to me. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing we've seen develop. Again, kind of the reinvention of religion at the technological stage. But uh, yeah, I continue to watch it in a bit of disbelief, even all these years later. Will, down to you.
4: Aren't we having fun, though? And that's what this is all about, right? Like, I, I want to see Jen's opinion on this, because this is NFTs on okay. Bitcoin, the original chain. This is what it's <laughs> supposed to be about. Jen, like, why aren't you throwing a party over there? Like, I want to see some confetti.
3: I am throwing a party and I wish that the control room would give me confetti to just celebrate every NFT story. And Will, any NFT story that gets you excited, I am on board with. I know, you know, when, when you look at Bitcoin, you compare it to Ethereum. We've talked about this before. Like in the mainstream, Bitcoin is seen as just this one trick pony. It can do one thing. It was created for peer-to-peer transactions and it has this like crazy religious army behind it who doesn't want to see anything else happen. I think that this is a really cool pivotal moment. And if we can see NFTs help change that narrative for Bitcoin, I think it's cool. But I do agree with you, Zach, that we are at this like weird point where we're going to have to define the next philosophy of Bitcoin. And I wonder what's going to happen and how uh, the mentality of the people who we call Bitcoin maximalists will change, or if it will stay the same and they will continue in their own little cult like group and attach themselves to some fork or or there will be a fork for for the other people. So I wonder what will happen from here. I think it's a cool story. And that is my take on it.
1: All right, we'll leave it there. Let's go to Doge. Not the coin, but the actual Doge. Remember when the internet was fun and there were silly memes like this? Well, maybe one of the most famous memes of that era is this very famous now 17-year-old Shiba Inu. Now, sadly, that particular Shiba Inu was diagnosed with leukemia. And relating to PleaserDAO, the owner of the couch on which that photo was taken, they've decided to auction off that couch in support of charity. This is what cryptocurrency and blockchain, I guess, can ultimately enable. Strange experiments in (laughs) fundraising. We got to talk about it. It's pretty funny, at least. And the website is great. So anyway, PleaserDAO doing this funny thing. The couch on which the famous Doge photo was taken, going up for auction soon. What does it all mean, Adam? What's going on? What's this story about? Why are we talking about it?
2: We live in an age of memes, right? We live in an age of ideas that can convey information at a pace and in a manner that allows those of us who, uh, again, like who immerse ourselves in this world that is the internet, to have this sort of common frame of reference with very, very little necessary to trigger that. Personally, I don't know if the couch is going to do it. I think that, you know, of the Dogecoin or of the Doge meme, the couch is probably not the thing that kind of everybody remembers that evokes that response. But I do think that, again, in this era of memes, we are seeing the increase in collectability of things that tie directly to those. In fact, they've become some of the most important sort of cultural touchstones, I think, that we have. So I think it's not surprising to see this type of move. And I think it's also pretty on brand for Pleaser DAO, who have really, again, kind of made their mark by trying to take things that have significance to the Internet and then to, you know, and then to popularize them or to sell them or to do something like or to buy them and hold them kind of in the form of the DAO. So, so that's kind of my read on it. I'm curious how much money they wind up raising. But I think that, again, at the end of the day, it winds up being a lot less about the couch itself and a lot more about the prestige, the flex that comes with being able to say that I have the Doge couch. I don't know how valuable that would be to me, but I'm sure it's real valuable to a lot of people out there. Will, what do you think?
4: Wow, you wouldn't buy the Doge couch. Uh, fair on the show. That's not great. I just don't have uh, I, I think this for. is just like... <laughs> Yeah, it does Do you accept Doge or not? Uh, This is like a cultural touchstone for a lot of crypto people. And so it makes sense that someone's going to turn this into a meme and every single crypto project out there needs memes in order to fuel attention. At the beginning of the show, we talked a lot about the VC coins. To be honest, this is how all coins work, right? Like you launch into the market, you have some high profile backers or you don't. And maybe you can get some attraction and your pricier token goes up. In the same way, I see a lot of these things just like that. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. There are some malicious attempts to get people's attention and uh, pump up the price of a certain token. But in this case, this is just fun, right? This is what the internet is all about. This goes back to the 1990s, which uh, our friend Zach the show can tell us all about how the internet was back in those <laughs> days. Super fun, right? Super fun. And now we're just getting back to that with this Pleaser doubt couch thing. It's like Craigslist on the blockchain. Who doesn't love that? i throw it over to Jim, though.
3: I think if anyone is going to pull this off, it's going to be, Pleaser Dow, right? So just a little disclosure, I've worked with them in the past. Um, but to understand the story, I think we need to take a little trip down memory lane, right? So PleaserDAO was formed in a matter of hours when a group of people decided they wanted to buy People Pleaser's first NFT that went up for auction. From there, they went on to do like a bunch of really crazy stuff, which included buying a single copy of a Wu-Tang Clan album that was owned by the Department of Justice, and they bought that for $4 million. They still have it and they're figuring out what they're going to do with it. But their whole like mantra and thesis here, right, is to take these really cultural pieces of artwork and cultural artifacts and then allow the world to enjoy that in a way that they may not have been able to in the past. I think this doge couch maybe falls into that narrative a little bit, maybe a little bit different than that Wu-Tang Clan album. But I think this is really cool. I'm pretty sure the article said that it is for charity. And so I'm just with it when it comes to PleaserDAO. I think they're doing it right when it comes to, you know, really blending that intersection between crypto and culture. Will, do not make your face like that.
1: I have to note a few (laughs) important details. It comes with dog smell, free of charge. The auction is for an (laughs) NFT that is redeemable within one year for said physical couch. And bids are placed in ETH. There's some other Dogecoin stuff on the FAQ, but this is strictly an ETH thing for now. Anyway, Jen, back to you for the last story of the day.
3: All right, we are going off to Facebook and their Metaverse division. Uh, They're kind of down bad right now. So the social media giant said they lost $13.7 billion on the division in 2022, and that's on a revenue of $2.2 billion. The company has previously said it expect operating losses in 2023 to grow significantly as Meta continues to invest in what it believes to be a crucial part of its future. On an earnings call on the 1st of February, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg honed in on virtual reality, noting that there are over 200 virtual reality apps in their ecosystem, and they make more than $1 million in revenue from those. Let's hear what else they had to say about VR.
4: The MR ecosystem
2: is relatively new, but I think it's going to grow a lot over the next few years. Uh, Later this year, we're going to launch our next generation consumer headset, which will feature
4: meta reality as well. And I expect that this is going to establish this technology as the baseline for all headsets going forward and eventually, of course, for AR
2: glasses as well.
3: All right, Adam, I'm going to pass this off to you. We have MR, which is meta reality, VR, which is not quite the metaverse, but may give us access to the metaverse. We have Mark Zuckerberg saying he still completely believes in that despite that almost $14 billion loss. What What do you make of where meta is right now when it comes to the metaverse?
2: Yeah, I mean, Meta is in an interesting, I just want to call him Facebook forever. Facebook is in an interesting situation uh, right now. Again, they've invested heavily into this. They think that it's the future. A lot of people think that it's the future, but there's a difference between being like, hey, yeah, I think that's going to be big. And hey, yeah, let me spend $100 billion uh, on this right now, hoping that I can make it big. It's a big bet for them. It's an existential bet for them at a certain point, you know, depending on how far they wind up taking it. Personally, I kind of hope they win just because I would like VR and AR technology to advance very, very rapidly. And kind of comparing where we are today to where we would need to be for this to actually have been a good decision for Meta, uh, like they need this to, to advance a lot from where it is. And so you'll find over and over again that companies, especially in their situation where they're really dominant in one area and that area is kind of fading. Again, people aren't using Facebook because it's cool. They're using Facebook because that's where grandma is. Uh, You know, like, at that point, you got to think of the next thing. And their strategy of just buying competitors hasn't really worked. They're kind of all suffering in the same way. They need a big win. I don't know if this is it. It's expensive either way. And I will just mention that the jump in share price also corresponds with the Federal Reserve meeting, which uh, ended yesterday, and which like surprised markets to the upside, because even though Fed Chair Jerome Powell Uh, you know, continues to say that things are going to be worse for longer, which in modern markets means markets aren't going to go up. Markets don't really believe them anymore. And we've seen significant rallies across all risk assets. So this kind of was nicely timed to fit into that as well. Uh, Call it the nobody believes Jerome Powell trade. Uh, What do you think, Zach? I think this is a
1: really big bet on whether Mark Zuckerberg can they like get lightning in a bottle twice, right? This is a guy who basically brought social media into mainstream existence back in 04, right? That became something that really changed American society and ultimately the global society in terms of how we interact with people, right? Can he do it again? Does he have the same intuition to identify another major trend that could reshape how we interact with each other online? And he's putting some big money behind that bet. I think for me, that's like the big sort of meta human drama. Sorry for saying meta, meta, meta drama, subtextual story that is interesting to watch this unfold. Quarter by quarter, we're probably just going to be along for the ride. But at some point, it comes down to that. Can he predict the future again? He happens to be putting significant resources into this second bet. Will it ultimately pan out? And will the metaverse be as normal to us in some future date as social media is to us now? And that, to me, is like the really interesting
4: story here, whatever the quarter-by-quarter results end up being. Will, I got to toss it to you. Yeah, the few things I want to bring up is, one, that Apple's also developing a headset. So we see that like a lot of these big fang companies are betting on this, and Apple's not a fang company itself, but there's a lot of these tech companies that have a lot of money, deep pockets. They've changed American society. They've changed Western society over the last few years, and they're really leaning into this metaverse VR headset idea. I think a lot of us on the show have been pretty bearish on the idea. We don't quite get it, but there must be something in the water for them to want to pick it up. And that leads to my second point is, you know, he said on this call that they had about 200 apps. Each app in this VR headset generates about $1 million in revenue. You know, that's significant. That's not something yet, but a lot of companies would love to have a million in revenue per year. Uh, And so if they have 200 applications so far that are already doing that, that might be driving them somewhere, at least a little bit. I will say I am pretty bearish on this overall, though, and I think a lot of markets are. Jen, I'll throw it to you for last take.
3: I guess my final thought that I will leave you guys in the audience with is: Has Meta become too big? Are there too many stakeholders, eyeballs on them, to actually innovate, move fast, and break things in the space? And I guess you know we'll see if they're able to do that. But it, we might find that they just. You know, they've become too big and their time has come, but only time will tell. Zach.
1: Yeah, (laughs) only time will tell. We're just going to close it on that. Only time will tell. Too big, too big to do anything. All right. That's it for the show today. Thanks for watching us on Coindesk TV. Check us out later on the podcast network. We appreciate you however you consume this fine hash content. I'm Zach Seward, Adam Levine, Jensen Assey, Will Foxley. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye now.